Hey everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. Today I have uh, in my uh, studio today, Daniel Downing, and he kind of has a Facebook presence and it's, it's a chef at large. And uh, he, he's previously been the chef at Jillian's here in town for the previous three years. And now he's working at uh, Salt City. And uh, one of the things that really caught me about uh, Daniel is he posts photos of his, of his dishes all the time. And I look at them and they're very enticing and, and make me want to go eat. Um, but he made a comment one time about how he viewed that as art. And I thought... You know, that, that's, that's a good perspective that there is a lot that goes into that. And then on top of that, I know there's a, a show that's very popular right now called the, the Bear. And there's a lot of conversation in that show about how uh, there's just a lot to it. There's a lot about the feeling about why people want to feed other people, why they want to prepare food and, and how there's so much effort and, and dedication and attention put into that. So that all made me think I'd want to have Daniel come in and talk a little bit about his experience and his motivation for that. So, Daniel, thanks for being in today. No problem. Thank you, Jason. So tell, tell me a little bit about, um, well, I want to know about your professional experience. But I, before we get to that, I, I guess I want to know about how you came to this career. What, what drew you to it? What made you think this is... Making food for other people is a thing I want to do. So that's something that, you know, I, I was never a little kid that said, oh, I want to be a chef when I grow up. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this is the behind, or I feel this way, that behind every uh, uh, paleontologist, there's, you know, a, a, a parent or a grandparent or someone who, uh, you know, bought that kid all of the dinosaur toys and took him to go see all of the museums and the fossil exhibits and the dinosaur movies. And that, that helped to develop that in, in that child. And then later on, they were pushed and, and allowed to become a paleontologist. Mm -hmm. You know, the same is kind of true for me as a kid. I, I like to cook. I like to be involved in, in cooking, you know, when, when it was going on in the family. Uh, my great aunt Leona was, was a real influence on me. Uh, I, I, some of my earliest memories with family, seven, eight years old, were going over around holidays and sitting and, and cooking with my Aunt Leona for the holidays. Um, spent a lot of time with her. Uh, she got to be very elderly where we would hang out in the afternoons and we would watch... Uh, uh, cooking shows, uh, uh, you know, America's Great Chefs, things like that, the old Discovery Channel stuff, you mm -hmm. know, back in the in the '90s, and we watched a lot of that together, and that that just sort of put that in me that you know it was something that I could do that people did, but I never personally saw culinary arts as something that could be a career for me until I got quite a lot older. Uh, you know, I, I was born in the early 80s. I was in my mid-20s before culinary school even looked like an option for me. And I, I got a little bit of a later start than a lot of people did at it. And so, you know, I, I had some, some good mentors in my life, some good people in my life that really spurred me forward, pushed me to, to do more, to really uh, really study and, and take on the, the uh, uh, culinary arts as, as an art, as a trade. 
And, you know, some of those people, my, I, I call him my friend and mentor, Mr. Gary Christie. He was not a cook. He wasn't a chef. He, he microwaved near, nearly every meal that he ever made. <laughs> but um, he, was, uh, uh, he was an artist. He was a working artist. And I spent most of my teenage years working with Gary Christie, doing everything from, from shingle sculptures to quarrying limestone to fresco paintings in people's basements. I did a lot of artistic work as an artist's apprentice, essentially, mm -hmm. under him. And he really pushed me you know, to, to find the things that I love to do in life and to make a career out of them. And you know, over time, that, that became you know, becoming a chef. And, and so do you talk to me a little bit about this idea that so you had some experience with art, you have this familiarity with uh, cooking you know, as, a, as a family thing. And pro I'm guessing maybe saw like how people responded to that and how much they enjoyed the food. It, it sounds like maybe at some point you kind of combine those two interests together. I, I, I feel like that's really true. Um, the, you know, you 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 try you try and find something that you love that you can make a living at. Yeah. And, you know, I, if. People are able to do that. That's the greatest way to live. I mean, I know it is for me. I go into work every day with a smile on my face, leave with a smile on my face, no matter how hard the day was yeah. or the day before, because I know I'm going to enjoy what I'm doing. And so, you know, being able to take, you know, my, my own artistic, you know, abilities and visions, apply that, turn it into something that that is actually, you know, uh, a part of myself that goes on the plate, a, a way of, of personal expression, self-expression. You know, it, that's what every artist wants, mm -hmm. I mean, is to be able to put their own self-expression directly in front of someone so that they can be seen through through what they've created. I mean, that's true if you're a musician, if you're a painter, if you're a sculptor, if you're a dancer, if you're a chef. Yeah, and, and, and probably with, with being a chef, uh, there's a, there's an immediacy to that, right? Like if I'm an artist and I paint something, uh, you know, there's the old story that I might be dead before people fully appreciate my art. But uh, in the culinary field, that's not the case. That you you get to see that people enjoy your art, your craft, your or skill. Or if they don't. <laughs> or if they don't, exactly. And people generally aren't shy about letting you know what they think. That, one way that's or the absolutely other. correct. You know, and yeah, it is. Um, Thomas Keller, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, he's a pretty famous chef. He has a place called the French Laundry out in California. Uh, he's a guy who really uh, uh, drove the farm-to-table movement in the United States, really brought that into the vocabulary and really elevated you know, the position of chef in, in the labor markets through the 90s and early 2000s. Thomas Keller, he famously has in, in his kitchen a giant clock hanging on the wall, and underneath it's inscribed, a sense of urgency. Uh -huh. the, those words, a sense of urgency. Urgency. And and you know the reason that's there is to remind people that is the hands on the, that clock move that if you don't have that sense of urgency that there's somebody in that dining room that's waiting for you. So one thing I notice a lot in the show The Bear that I that I've been watching a lot of people have been watching um, is that exact thing that the camera all always pans to the clock and there's this. And, and one of the chefs has that written sense of urgency on their prep table and they always the chefs are always looking at the clock and it's always like their backs against the wall. Absolutely. If you're not watching the clock, then then your food is dying. Yeah. And that, that's a common saying in the kitchen. The food is dying. The food is dying. You know, it's it was prepared. It was ready. It's a, it's under the warmer and it needs to get out to the customer right now. And there's that sense of urgency again. It, it's everything has to happen in the exact motion 
the, that it requires for the dish or, or it's not going to come out correct. And once it's done, you know, it's, it's out of our hands. Once it's on the pass and ready to sell and ready to go out to the dining room, we don't have control over that anymore. That goes on to the next step of the process, which is front of house, the servers, mm -hmm. you know, wait staff. And, you know, you, you'll find yourself so often in a night watching that clock or as, as you're cooking and you know that you've got something that needs to go out to the dining room and maybe you've got half the ticket ready and, and other items that are, that are still on the grill and some that are in the oven and you're watching that clock and you know you've got to move on to the next ticket. And that, that sense that your back is constantly against the wall, that is kitchen life. Yeah. <laughs> 100% of the time. Well, and I've, I've never done any high-end cooking except whatever I try at home, but I did uh, I did do some work. I actually owned a restaurant years ago. Oh. Um, but so it was like breakfast food and, you know, lunch and things like that. But one of the things I remember from all of my time that I spent cooking was uh, people tend to think of it as, I mean, it's kind of... It, Cooking or whatever kind of has this idea of like a low skill job. I mean, people say that, and we'll get into that a little bit sure. more later. But one of the things I remember is uh, the mental juggling that has to go on. Uh, you know, if I was cooking breakfast for someone and I'm cooking hash browns, I know I have to just intuitively kind of know how long they're going to take. And if they've ordered over easy eggs to go with those hash browns, I have to know exactly the right time to put those eggs on so that everything comes together on that plate at exactly the right moment to get it out. And sure. I don't think people fully recognize that, that there's there's a lot of jigsaw pieces going on in There's in a lot a of moving line. parts. There are a lot of moving parts in the kitchen. And when you've got, you know, two, four, ten people working under you, all of them have their station, all of them have a job to do, and you're yourself in the middle of cooking and plating and dressing dishes, and you're calling the tickets and you're, and you're you know, as you say, juggling, you know, everything that's going on in the room. And, you, you know, I, when I'm in that spot, I don't have any personal control over what the grill tech is doing or what the person working the fry station or saute station is doing. I, I can constantly be asking questions. I can say, hey, did you put salt in that? You know, how long do you have left on those fries? I need that steak. You know, I, I can say those things, but the person who's running that station, they have to be professional what they're doing and they have to you know, as you say, intuitively know how long it's uh, they have left, you know, and, and if I ask them in the middle of, of uh, service, you know, I holler out, you know, how long do we have left on that ribeye? They'll, they'll tell me it's going to be a minute, two minutes, 30 seconds, you know, and that right there helps me to meter the meal service to mm -hmm. make sure that everything else comes together at the same time. And so in that sense, you know, being a chef takes on that next layer of almost like being a conductor and each person in there is, is a, is a person playing an instrument and yep. you, you've got to, you've got to get the timing right. Yeah. It all, and it all has to, and if one, it's like a note that's, played at the wrong time or the wrong note played if it doesn't all come together at the same time. Absolutely. And yeah. and then the food is dying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, tell me about your uh, your education. You told me a little bit before we started recording about, uh, you said you graduated from culinary school in 2007, and then you did some that, that specialties was the, after that. the Stratford and Falls Church, Virginia. Okay. And I began that as a distance learning and then did my on-site and lab techs there and, and stayed out in the Polk Bay area. And uh, while I was there, uh, Chef Carl Gustav was was a chef. He and I started correspondence and uh, and really got to know one another really well. He. He, uh, he and I kind of identified, I think, and there was, you know, that, that sort of mentorship that I talk about, people who really pushed me forward, and he was one that really pushed me forward and said, well, there's this 
program through a sister school that I work with, uh, Der Schweizerkoke School in Dusseldorf, Germany. They they offer a, a program where you can get an actual writ in culinary arts from from a European school. That's something that most people in the United States will never have over there. It's seen as as a, uh, a trade craft. You get, like I said, a journeyman's paper is almost like being a plumber. And you have to work so much time in so many restaurants and, and study at so many places, and you get writs from each of these places. And once your journeyman papers are filled, then you're officially a chef. Okay. <laughs> and and that, that's how it works in Europe. Um, here, we're a lot less formal than that. And so I, I pursued that with Dishweiser Koka School, which means the Swiss cook school, by the way. Okay. And, and I studied Prussian method through them, received my writ, and then later on got a secondary certification that, that began through Dishweiser Koka School. Uh, from Verona, Italy, at uh, the Defayette Professioni, which is a cell school, which is uh, the best way I can describe that is is uh, a little like a community college, mm-hmm. but it's specifically for cooking. And you've got all of these little rooms that are designed, all of these offices that are designed for specific parts of the culinary trade. And uh, I, I wasn't able to go through their full program or anything. What I was able to do was to complete their regional program. Okay. And, and that's uh, that's uh, uh, pretty much the lowest level certification you can get there. But it was a great opportunity, and it allowed me to really start to understand a lot about Italian cooking and and uh, the, the different regions of Italy, the, the foods that they have. And, and to realize something that they never teach you in culinary school and they never teach you in geography school, and that is that the distance from Milan, Italy, to Munich, is, uh, Munich, Germany, is less distance than Denver to Kansas City. Really? And the reason that for me that was important culinarily is because all of a sudden that you, uh, you can understand that Milanese and schnitzel are the same dish for a reason. Ah. (laughs) Because they're geographically quite close. Exactly. Really, it is just one cuisine. It is one European cuisine that is regionally different. It's divided by language and slight nuances of local traditions, but German, Italian, Austrian, most provincial French cooking, it is all a single cuisine. And that's something they never bother to tell you in cooking school, that they never bother to tell you in geography, that if you if you start to look at Europe in that sense, you know, the, that very modern EU Eurocentric way of, of looking at Europe, if you start to look at the food that way, all of a sudden you can understand that you can make all of those different cuisine with the same techniques, the same understanding, you don't need individual recipes from the different regions. You just need to understand what, ingredients are common to those reasons uh, regions and follow the basic tradition of the cooking. Okay, because one of my questions was going to be if you have a, a cuisine that you like more than another, another, but it sounds like they're quite interchangeable with maybe some slight variations based on local preference or whatever. Absolutely. Right? And, I, you know, to answer that, really, I, I can't say that I have any one cuisine that I prefer to cook, and I don't think that any chef really does. I, I think that it is, you know, for me, and I, I, I'm sure that there are other chefs that would hear this and tell me that I was, you know, full of it. But for me, it is just about being honest and authentic and true to your ingredients, 
whatever it is that you're supposed to be cooking to do it in the best way that you possibly can. So if I'm cooking Italian or if I'm cooking Greek or if I'm cooking German or, you know, whatever the cuisine is, you know, if, if somebody comes to me and tells me, I, I want you to cook this, it isn't about, oh, well, that isn't what I cook. It's, well, how do I do that the best that I possibly can with my skill set? Now, I'm a, I'm a little curious, too, about you, you you create dishes too, right? Yes. You you just you kind of have you you're looking at your. And I want you to kind of walk me through that a little bit because I've seen you say, "Well, I'm, this is inspired by this, but I'm using these ingredients." Um, how how does that process work? Where you're saying, "I want to create this dish." It depends on what you're trying to create. Um, I have sp- I've got a, a dish that I tried out at Jillian's that never made it to the menu. I wish it had. Um, I, I ended up calling it a, uh, uh, pork simois. Uh, simois means six months in French. And the reason for that is because that dish spent s- six months on paper before I ever cooked it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and that one literally began as theorizing a sauce. Okay. And, you know, well, I, I, I have a dish in mind. I don't know what that dish is. So what do I want it to do? Well, I want it to, I want it to, to be piquant, which means uh, slightly spicy or tangy, more tangy than spicy. And, and I, I had made that decision as I was thinking about the dish that I wanted it to be piquant. And so, you know, you begin looking at your different sauces and your different, uh, you know, classical method sauces. And once you've settled on, on a, a beginning for that, you say, well, what are the ingredients in the sauce? You know, what are the things that you want to use? Well, in that particular one, I really wanted to play with the flavors of pickles. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, trying different pickles, settling on a, uh, a salted French gherkin, um, and and then pureeing that down and saying, okay, well, you know, I'm I'm going to use salted French gherkin. I'm I'm going to make a piquant sauce. Well, now what is that going to go well with? And then you start exploring proteins. And once you've got your protein figured out, and you know, well, you don't want to work with beef, and you don't want to work with fish, and chicken seems a little too low end for the dish that you're trying to create, and settle on pork. Well, what cut of pork, and how are you going to cook it? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so on and so forth. And so six months I spent slowly developing from the idea that I wanted to make a piquant gherkin sauce that worked well in a dish until I had something that would work on a plate. And I, and I cooked it three days, and, and it was lovely. And, I, and in that three days, I learned a lot about the dish. I learned, you know, that my uh, original ratios on the sauce were completely wrong and needed to be thrown out. <laughs> and uh, you, you adjust those on the fly. You go back to your paper. You, you draw in the as-built. So you say, well, this is how I actually built the sauce, not the way I had written the sauce. Uh, then you come back and you cook it the next day and you say, okay, well, you know, I, I feel like that pork was getting a little bit dr- dry with the cooking method that I was using. And so, you know, go back to the drawing board there and you go from a grill to a pan sear and from a pan sear to, uh, to, uh, uh, covering it in in buttered wax paper and foil, and you know running it uh, running it through a 500 degree oven, and well that didn't work. Well let's go back to the grill and and uh, you know profile it, get the grill marks on it, and then finish it in a pan in the oven. And finally you come, oh well it's uh, you know it, it looks nice and it's still juicy. 
you know, and and so that's that's part of the process. Mm-hmm. And then once you've got it on the plate and you think it works, that's when you start the real work of being a chef, and that is making it cost effective. Yeah. Well, and that's that I was thinking. You can. It's it's like art. And I was, as you were talking, I was thinking it. Uh, ingredients are kind of like a, a color palette, right? You you look at. The, a painter would look at the different colors and say, I know these colors go together well, or they either complement or they contrast each other, and th- this is what I want in a painting. And you kind of do the same thing with, with ingredients and flavors. But at the end of the day, you, you're, what you just said is right. You, you, you can make a fantastic dish, but if the, if the money doesn't work, or it takes far more time and far more money and ingredients. If, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah. And, you know, we, we don't live in the classical age where you can cook for a king anymore, where, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what your labor numbers are, what your ingredient costs are. You know, we, we live in America. And at the end of the day, a restaurant's there to make money. And if that dish doesn't work, it doesn't work. And so it doesn't make it to the menu. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's how that goes. Um, and sometimes you make something beautiful that makes it to the menu and customers just kind of look at it and pass it over and you never understand why that is, but you know, they pass it over long enough and it drops off the menu and you know, it's, it's gone forever. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that happens so often. And so, you know, to, to use the, the painter analogy, I mean, how many painters out there have painted thousands of works and, and, uh, you know, only a dozen of them ever sold, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, oh, there's a, is it Hobbs or, uh, he, he painted the uh, uh, diner scene, I think it's called Night Owls. Okay, yeah. You, are you familiar with that? Yeah. Um, so I, I was just uh, watching a program about him a couple weeks ago, and and they brought up that when when he very first uh, very first hit as a painter, you know, and now he's one of the more famous American painters. But when he very first hit as a painter, he had painted a Parisian scene of uh, uh, like, like a cafe in the evening. It was called uh, uh, Blue Evening or Blue Night or something like that. And and there were these sort of lonely figures all looking in different directions and a sad clown in the center of it. And he displayed this, and he thought it was one of his greatest works, and he loved it. And it was one of these things that the rest of his life, he'd pull it out and he'd show it to people, and and they'd go, oh, that's amazing. But when it very first came out, there were a couple other works that showed with it, and people loved him, and they wrote great reviews about him, and they said that that particular one just wasn't really that good. Uh. And so later on, he became famous and and he he did these great works and and painted things that most people would recognize in pop culture but here here was something that he made that he loved that you know is in its own right absolutely beautiful but the the critics just didn't care for yeah and you know that that happens to chefs all the time (laughs) you you make something that you love that you think is just going to be amazing and is going to hit and it tastes great and it looks beautiful on the plate your critics are your customers and you've got them in your dining room every single night and they they vote with their uh, with their dollars they uh, they tell you if it's any good or not and i think that one of the tricky things i i think about uh, menu development is there there's kind of a balance between having the reliable things, kind of the comfort food, if you will, that, that customers are, are familiar with and they know and, and they'll reliably buy, 
Um, but but menus can get stale also, right? Like I see that all the time. You've got to kind of introduce new breath into the menu all the time. Uh, and, but, and, and, and that's that constant process of testing, right? And, absolutely. And that's something that I personally you know, advocate for and fight for is that you have got to keep your menu fresh. You have got to be willing to change. Change is not your enemy in the restaurant business. You have got to be willing to try new things, find out what works and what doesn't. And if what you were doing doesn't work, then and what you are doing does, throw what you were doing out the window, even if that puts off some of your customers that really liked it. Uh, you know, that, that's another great quote that I, I remember reading a while back, and I can't remember who said it, but he said that, uh, that uh, uh, entrepreneurs never fail by trying new things, but by uh, finding a good idea and sticking with it for too long. Yeah. Yeah. And and that happens in restaurants all the time. You open up, you, you're doing great things. Maybe you find out what works and that's working and it runs for a few years and everybody's happy with it and you, you're doing great and you think you can just keep doing that forever. And eventually, not so much. And that, that's, you know, the seven-year itch in a marriage is the same as the seven-year itch in, a, in a, uh, a restaurant. If you don't find ways to adapt and overcome, it, it'll, it'll take you down. Yeah, yeah. We had touched on this a little bit earlier, we at least hinted at it, and I, I kind of want to ask about this. Um, do, you, do you feel that people in the food industry, whether they're a chef or, or they're working in a traditional kitchen, uh, get the level of respect that they deserve? No. Um, I, I mentioned Thomas Keller earlier, and that's something he advocated greatly with Department of Labor is up until the mid-90s, culinary workers were considered not just unskilled labor, we were we were considered to be uh, 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 oh, essentially house servants mm. like like maids or or uh, butlers or or uh, uh, nannies or home cleaners now, not to disparage people in that uh, that line of work at all but the, that's how we were looked at by the department of labor and the they didn't even bother to record median income statistics on people in our line of work until until the uh, uh, mid 90s because it was not considered tradecraft in any way. It was, uh, you know, the, the lowest possible job you could have according to Department of Labor. Wow. And, and yet, and then kind of like we talked, I mean, there's, there's different levels of this, but uh, at one level, you, you may be in a, you know, a, a, a greasy spoon cafe, but it still requires uh, the ability to understand ingredients. It still requires the ability to time things appropriately and manage all of those things. Absolutely. Uh, it, 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 or, you know, on the higher end where you're really understanding like the history of food and, and the way these flavors have been cultivated over time. Uh, but no matter where that job is, it's the sort of work that if you threw anybody into it uh, and just sit, because like we tend to classify it as unskilled or low skilled work, uh, we could throw anyone into it and they would soon find out that they're not equipped for it, right? And it takes experience it, and training. It and does. Um, if if you've got good people and good systems and good training in place and good leadership, then you, you can pull a 16-year-old kid off the street that's never run a mop and develop them and turn them into someone who can work in the kitchen very well. It'll take six months. To a year, mm -hmm. and that's if there's someone who shows up every day. If there's someone who has drive and you know hard work in their heart, 
You can do that, though. You can take someone from nothing to a very high level very fast, but it's got to be a special person. It's got to be someone who wants that. Um, you, you can't just take someone off the street, throw them into the kitchen, and, and say, you know, push this button with your right hand yeah. and, and just have it work. Um, you know, that, that might work for something like putting fries in a fryer or flipping a burger. But, you know, in a very short amount of time, you're going to find out that that person just does not have the tools that they need to do anything beyond run a fryer and flip a burger. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you, you have to develop people. You have to develop talents. You've, you've got to, you know, cultivate natural abilities. You know, when, when you find someone has an acumen for, for you know, one, uh, one skill set or another, you've really got to, you know, help that to grow. And I mean that for me, I, I I always think of core competencies in people. You know what are what are something that you know they they just have an incompetency for, and I look for that in individuals. One of my core competencies is that I I tr- develop people well. I can find somebody and and recognize in them you know a, a want to understand the business, a want to work in a kitchen, and I can take that person and I can lift them up and I can teach them. You know I I'll spend six months teaching somebody French sauce. In in a in a kitchen in Hutchinson, Kansas, I will spend six months teaching somebody the Escoffier methods of mother sauces because I know that person wants to learn and that that's going to serve them in the future and it's going to serve me in the business that I'm in. Mm -hmm. And 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 it seems that people that that stay in this uh, for any length of time at all, they they have to have a passion around this, right? Absolutely. And, And and. where, where, typically, where do you think that passion comes from? I mean, I, people tend to have, I mean, you have the story about growing up with your aunt and some of the cooking there and seeing how that, uh, you know, how people responded to that. But uh, is there a common thread in the sort of thing that drives that passion? I, I, on the show, you know, they're talking about like, these, I, there, there's a great I, scene in there. I, I, I can give you an answer and it's, you know, going to it, it's going to sound awful, but it's the same thing that draws people to being artists and muni- uh, musicians and so on. And it's that they are sad, broken egomaniacs that are looking for an outlet. I mean, that's that's why Van Gogh painted. That's why that's why uh, uh, you know Lennon wrote and sang. Uh, that that's why everybody does anything involved in the arts is because they're looking for an outlet. And they and they have something they desperately want to share with the world. Absolutely, right? and and so here and and here's a way to do it. Yeah. You know, whether it's as simple as putting French fries on a plate, or de- uh, designing a uh, a seven course dinner for a hundred people, it's an outlet for them. Uh, whether you're you're you know playing guitar for a dozen people on a street corner, or if you're you know display, displaying your paintings at the Louvre, you are trying to get something out there. Yeah. Trying to get something out of yourself and, and be seen. Yeah, in the world, I, I would say uh, writers are probably in that. <laughs> I'm that sure same that that's true. I'm well. absolutely <laughs> sure that that is true. And and for that matter, you know, dancers and and fashion designers. I mean, you know, it, 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 we're we're all in the same business, and it's serving ourselves. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's interesting because it is because that that sense of satisfaction that you get. Uh, in related to food or writing or art or whatever it is, really comes from 
you know, putting it out there, but also from that being consumed by someone else and appreciated by someone sure. else too. It's right? it's it's that feedback that you get from doing something that pleases you and having it please somebody else as well. Yeah. Uh, so I I, I want to. I was thinking about this earlier too. So one of the things that's always been interesting to me about food and and cooking is that <coughs> where we are today. Uh, and what we understand about food and ingredients and how to do things uh, actually was developed over a very long period of time, right? The things oh, yes. that we understand on from everything from what we can and can't eat, what uh, goes well together, how to uh, thicken a sauce, all these things like some point in the history of the, this was there was a lot of experimentation going on. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'd, people say it, it must have taken a, a, a brave and hungry man to have eaten the first oyster. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we discover there that they're delicious. Um, mushrooms culinarily are, are interesting to me because, uh, you know, we, we know a lot about mushrooms. We know a lot about mushrooms. We know which ones are poisonous. We know which ones are not. We know of the ones that are not poisonous, what they taste like, how they grow well, where they grow, what parts of the world they grow in, uh, what to cook them with, what to use them with. The reason we know that is because of the Roman emperors and their obsession with food. Mm -hmm. And they literally had thousands of slaves go out and pick mushrooms mushrooms all over uh, Europe and, and Asia and North Africa and bring them back and eat them. And if they lived, they had them tell them what they tasted like. <laughs> that, that's a serious thing that happened. Um, you know, that, that's, you know, just a single ingredient. And, and then, you know, we've, we've got all of the culinary herbs and those, you know, come from a lot of medicinal traditions, but also just years and years of people picking weeds and going, hmm, this one smells good and this one tastes good. And over time, those, you know, were cultivated into the culinary herbs of which we've got hundreds of them available mm -hmm. to us. Um, you know, you, you get into the deeper nuance of balanced flavor, of balancing acid and sweetness and fat and things like that. That gets a little bit more re uh, recent. You know, you've got uh, Auguste Escoffier uh, in, in the uh, uh, late 19th, early 20th century. And, and he, he really perfected the art of how, how you build sauces in restaurants and things like that. Uh, you know, listed the mother sauces, your... your uh, uh, Oh gosh, it's it's been a minute, but uh, yeah, you know, you've got your sauce espanol, you you've got your velouté, uh, you you've got your hollandaise, you've got uh, technically mayonnaise isn't one of them, but but we consider it one nowadays. Uh, you've uh, you've got your. Uh, uh, oh, bechamel, and I know I'm forgetting one. Um, but but any, uh, anyway, you know you you've got the uh, uh, mo uh, the mother sauces, and those all come from Escoffier, and that began, you know, the, this tradition that really exploded, and and you know, in the twentieth century became all of these more rigid cuisines that we have today. Uh, in my time as a chef, just in the past ten years, I'll say ten to twelve years, my uh, my time as a chef. Uh, I have been both fortunate and unfortunate enough to have lived through what 
some people are calling the the foodie revolution, mm -hmm. where all of a sudden home cooks have access to ingredients that were not available to them before, international ingredients, fresher ingredients, fresh fish, more produce, things like that. And so home cooks, like you, you, know, you mentioned yourself as <laughs> earlier, all of a sudden you have access to things that you didn't before, and a lot of people are experimenting at home and, and making really culinarily beautiful things at home and then they go out to eat and they expect the food that they get at a restaurant to be on the same level if not higher yeah uh the problem there is as we you know spoke earlier if if it doesn't work yeah. you know if you can't make that cost out right you know if if you're cooking for two or for a, ten, a dinner party for 10 in your home you you can afford to absorb the cost of of some ingredients that maybe could never make it onto a menu at a restaurant yeah. or at most restaurants but that foodie culture has spilled over and come into the restaurants and has really you know it's raised the bar for us in a lot of ways because people who are willing to go out and spend that kind of money are expecting the the level of food that they know they can cook at home mm -hmm. or better even <laughs> even though like as you said that at the home they don't have to take into consideration i i have to be able to replicate this and i have to be able to re replicate this in a way that is cost effective exactly yeah. you know they it's it's wonderful that you made a, a beautiful dish for you and your your spouse or you and your family or you and your friends and and that turned out great and now it's time for the cleanup and you know you you can go back to your day job I have to do that for a hundred families yeah. <laughs> every night the exact same way. Uh, and when they come back a week or a month later and they order the same thing, it has to be the exact same way. Yeah. And whether anybody shows up next week and orders it, I have to have everything on hand ready to make it the exact same way yeah. every single day. Yeah. <laughs> and and that, that is a challenge that, you know, that you don't have in your home kitchen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You do not have in your home kitchen. And so, you know, we we have to balance that. We have to make sure that we can offer people that sort of foodie experience that they're looking for, those, those high-end artisan quality dishes. And we have to be able to do it in a way that's, as you say, repeatable and cost-effective. Yeah. Now, you, I want to go back to the mother sauces. You talked about that. It, why are they called mother sauces? Oh, uh, that, that's really simple. Um, so from the mother sauces, you build small sauces. Okay. So uh, to uh, take an example, hollandaise. You make a hollandaise, very simple, uh, egg, butter, lemon juice, a little bit of salt, temper your eggs. You end up with this wonderful velvety sauce with a, a slight acidity to it. Uh, the, the acidity helps to emulsify the butter and the egg together. Mm -hmm. And uh, hollandaise is really about balancing how much butter you can get the protein of your egg to hold before it breaks. Okay. And, and by breaks, I mean the oil separates from uh -huh. it. So you, you want to come right up to the line, get as much butter into there as you possibly can without, without breaking the sauce. Well, once you have hollandaise, you can start to build small sauces. Uh, you, you can build a, a sauce circe, which is done by adding tomato paste and uh, uh, generally a little bit of veal stock. Um, you can do a Bernays, which is tarragon and chervil, and then a, a very carefully balanced mix of white wine and uh, white wine vinegar, champagne vinegar. And if, if you read the Escoffier recipes, it always sounds like too much. You go, oh my God, that's a lot of vinegar. But once you get it cooked down and you get it done correctly and, and you blend it with the, the uh, uh, 
blend it with the hollandaise, you end up with this just perfectly balanced mix of that fattiness from the the egg and the butter and that sweet and tangy and then the the uh, anisette flavors come in from the chervil and the uh, uh, tarragon and it is just, it's a, a magnificent sauce that, uh, you know, really belongs on on eggs, on seafood, uh, that you, you can come into it on beef really easily and, it, and it's great. So, uh, you know, th- those are just a couple examples of small sauces where you begin by building a mother sauce and then add other ingredients to it to turn it into another, another sauce. sauce. Okay. And, and the idea there is that management that you do in a kitchen is, say you want to make six different dishes with six different sauces and you've designed those dishes to all work off of hollandaise as a mother sauce, well, you can make a very large batch of hollandaise sauce, and as the night goes by, every time you get an order for one of those, well, you just go get two to four ounces of hollandaise, you you add your tarragon, your your chervil, your white wine and, and uh, vinegar, you cook it down very quickly, and you have a bernays, and you dress your fish, and you send it out. Okay. Or you can turn around, and, and you can do a sauce chiron, or... or uh, Oh, there's a, a shrabu, which has a uh, shrub or shrabu. I never remember which that is pronounced correctly, but that has a, uh, a spinach puree added to it. It gives it a lovely green color. Mm-hmm. Uh, that works really well with pork. And and so there's all of these different sauces that you can build for different dishes just by having that one that sauce one on mother it. sauce. Exactly. Okay, okay. That, that makes it. I suspected that, but I wanted to make sure, sure. I got that. It, as you were talking about hollandaise sauce, and, and, and it reminded me, too, that... Cooking is not always just about flavor. There's a texture component to all of this, too, Absolutely. right? And, and can you talk about that a little bit? Because if the flavor is good but the texture is wrong, uh, people kind of intuitively know that something's off, right? Sure, sure. Uh, texture, you know, we, we tend to want things that we know are supposed to be crisp or crispy or crunchy. Uh, th- those should taste fresh. They should taste bright. And so if you get something that you intuitively know looking at it on a plate, it should be fresh, it should be bright, and you bite into it, and it's soft, and it's soggy. Yeah. <laughs> that is a horrible experience. So, you know, you, 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 you want to make sure that as you're designing a dish or as you're building dishes that, you, uh, that are familiar to people, that you are always bringing those familiar textures to them. Um, and, and also, you know, with... Uh, uh, Oh, beef, pork proteins of any kind, having them cooked the right way is very important. And that isn't always necessarily the way a customer would ask for it. Um, salmon is one in particular. The fat renders at 125 degrees in uh, uh, farm-raised salmon, which is the most common kind of salmon that you're going to find anywhere in the U.S. And if you, as you go over 125 degrees, you start converting some of those really good omega fatty acids that are in there into hydrolyzed acids that are going to start pulling in moisture. And when they do that, the only moisture that's available is the moisture in the fish, which mm. tends to taste fishy. And fat is, an, is a flavor carrier, so as it pulls moisture into it, it pulls fishy flavors in and gives you more fishy flavors. So if you ever eat salmon that tastes really fishy, chances are it's overcooked. Mm. Now there's a balance there because if you go, you know, 120 degrees to 125 degrees, it has a bit more of a texture like sushi. Uh, Salmon can be a very soft fish when it is cooked 
right up to the edge of correctly cooked. You've got a little window there. If you go too far, your fish is going to be firm and it's it's going to you know be a, a good texture for eating, but it's going to taste fishy and it's going to be terrible. If you undercook it, then it's going to be soft and mushy, but it's going to taste very good. Uh-huh. So, so it will feel wrong in it, your mouth. It will feel wrong in your mouth, correct. And so, you know, to to get the proper texture without converting those fats and acids and and giving it that fishy flavor is a balancing act. And you've got to stay in a very tight window temperature-wise to get salmon correct. Okay. Um, and a lot of people don't. <laughs> and so, you know, if you undercook it, it doesn't feel right in your mouth. It's the wrong texture. If you overcook it, it feels right in your mouth, but it doesn't taste right. Uh-huh. So you've, you know, you've got to stay in that window right there. Interesting. Um, is there, is there something that you found in your experience that is particular? I mean, you described that. Is, is there something that you found that is particularly challenging to cook exactly the right way? Oh, because that I, sounds pretty tricky. You're talking about a, a, five, deg- a ten, five degree, ten degree, five window. to ten degree window. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and and it's not tricky. You just you ha- you have to develop you know that uh, intuitive sense of how long it takes to cook a piece of salmon. Uh, when you throw a larger than average piece into into cook, you've got to account for that. When it's smaller than average, you've got to account for that. But at the end of the day, you live and die by a thermometer. Uh-huh. And if you are remembering to to temp your meat and and you're pulling it early to temp it and saying, well, okay, I've got another minute to thirty seconds, and when chef calls out, you know, how long do I have left on that salmon? And you say, I've got a minute or I've got thirty seconds, it should come off right every time. Yeah. Um, and that is, I, I can't tell you that there's something I find particularly challenging. Um, there's, you know, there, there's a lot of meats with challenges. Brisket has a challenge to it. <laughs> um, a, a lot of home cooks have found that, that they just can't get brisket the way that they want it. Um, and that's, that's another one that just, it takes, you know, knowing what temperature you need to be at, knowing where that window is, where the collagen's going to convert so that it comes out how you want it. And and that right texture where it's not stringy, it's not chewy, it's not dry, it's that soft, sticky, sumptuous, fall-apart piece of brisket that we're all looking for. Um, and, and that's something that, you know... You you can you can work it uh, come with that with for mathematics you can uh, you can weigh it and know how long it's going to take at a certain temperature and you know a certain moisture content and so on and so forth but really it it comes down to intuitively knowing you know what what your kitchen smells like when the brisket is about ready to come mm-hmm. out and, and and the thing about brisket you said something about the collagen breakdown mm-hmm. and I've I've read a little bit about this that. Um, there's a moment where the, the the temperature doesn't increase anymore because the the they, they call it the stall, waiting yes. for the stall and they're waiting for that collagen to break down and then people that haven't read up on this or aren't experienced they'll turn the heat up right because they think well trying to get it to raise faster which is exactly the wrong thing to do correct get your but, because up. then it converts your collagen into elastin which is a completely different protein structure, and it shares its prefix with elastic yeah. <laughs> for a reason. <laughs> and, and that's how you end up with chewy brisket. <laughs> Which you then chop up and cover in barbecue sauce. Yeah, and, and, that's that what, and, and when you have chopped brisket at a, uh, 
at a barbecue stand, that's the reason that they do it. It's <laughs> because they they have uh, converted their proteins into the wrong uh, <laughs> wrong chain structure. <laughs> and that's you know that's another thing. There's chemistry involved. I mean, you talked about uh, putting as much butter into the egg protein as you can. Um, it's one of the things that's always fascinating me about. There's history in food. There's flavor. There's texture. That's kind of this you know art artistic thing, but there's also chemistry, a huge amount of chemistry involved in cooking, right? That you apply heat to something and it changes the structure of it. Um, you talk about sauces breaking down. If you heat them too much, then they separate. Um, there, there's a lot that you have to understand uh, when, you, when you're doing this to, kind of work. To do right? it well, yes, absolutely. Um, and and you, you can... You can fake it to a point. You can skate by to a point. There's so many people that do, so many places that do. But at a certain point, kitchen work is its one of the last great meritocracies in, in, in the world, really. Because at a certain point, either you can make the omelet or you can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it either either when you go to flip the omelet, it slides beautifully out of the pan and, and lands perfectly, or it doesn't. And or when you go to make the sauce, either it glosses over and takes on that velvety texture, or it breaks and and you dump it on a plate and there's oil at the rim. Uh-huh. You know, either you can or you can't, <laughs> and and that's that's one of those things that you know you you can teach it, you can learn it, you can train it, but you know it, at the end of the day, when when that service begins and that sense of urgency is there, and you're watching the clock with your back against the wall and all of the different moving parts are in play and everybody's doing their job and you know the the salmon is cooking and the steak is cooking and and you know the the sauce is heating and everything's going on either you can bring all of that together and make it turn into a set of beautiful dishes coming across the pass and going out to the diner and and you can do that consistently day in and day out or you cannot yeah yeah I, I have just a couple more questions for you, but I, I'm curious if you have a favorite dish. Ooh, I, I have a lot of favorite dishes. Um, oh, for a while at Jillian's, I served my poposo, poposo Toscano. That is a Tuscan-style braised beef cooked with prunes and red wine and heavily peppered. Mm. Uh, that dish goes all the way back to to uh, Tuscan tile makers back in you know the pre-Columbian era when when uh, Italian food didn't include tomato sauces. Um, you know, wow. it's one of those things Da Vinci would have eaten when visiting Tuscany. Oh wow! Uh, I, I love that dish for the history and also just because it is so good. And it's one of those, uh, you know, you, you take a piece of beef that is generally not known as being particularly tender, and you just cook it down very slowly in in red wine and heavy pepper and, and prunes and prune juice, and it just takes on a new color and a new texture and a, a deep, jammy fruitiness and, and all of those great, almost floral notes of the, of the pepper. It's a beautiful dish. And uh, so that's a favorite of mine for a lot of reasons. One is just that I like to eat it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's usually, that's a good reason to have, I mean, a favorite dish, right? It's just like, absolutely. I like it. Um, <coughs> more to my roots, I guess, I really enjoy spatzel, which are little uh, uh, German fried noodles uh-huh. with like uh, bacon and cottage cheese and, and a ton of butter. 
Uh, that's that's a personal favorite of mine as a side dish, and I sometimes make it at home. I used to make it every day at our restaurant in Junction City. Oh wow! And uh, and ser- served it there. Um, you know that's that's a favorite. I love eating German food. Um, I used to cook German food professionally, and at home I cooked Italian for my family, and then I cooked Italian professionally, and at home I cooked German for my family, <laughs> and uh, and now I'm I'm sort of in a in in between spot where I'm trying to find a new culinary footing, and I, I haven't really found that that set of comfort foods again yet. Yeah. Yeah, and and so you've been with uh, Salt City Brewery for uh, about how long now? About six weeks now. About okay, and uh, and you've you, I can tell you've done some some experimentation there uh, with with that. So you like you said, you're still trying to kind of figure out what the what the right mix of in, uh, of menu items are here, right? So Correct. I'm sure at this point you'd be happy to get feedback from people on what and, and we're doing that. We're doing some feedback cards right now. I think we've got a pretty good vision of where we're moving forward at this point. It's taken a little bit of time to find what's working in the marketplace and what works with, you know, the people we have, the kitchen that we have. Um, you know, I, I think that we, uh, we're we going to have a, a new menu coming pretty soon that's going to you know, really, really hit with our customers, really hit with the the entire community here. You know, we're, we're trying to do some really good things there. That's good. That's good. It, it, we've covered a lot of ground uh, on this, and it's been a really good conversation, Thank so you. I appreciate that. Um, but if, if there was one thing that you wish people knew or understood about what you do, uh, w- what would you want them to know? One thing. If, if there's one thing that I want people to know about what I do, it's that fine food is philosophy you can eat. And that if you take the time to appreciate the food in the same way that I appreciate the ingredients that are uh, going into it and appreciate the people and, and the investment and the time that, that goes into pre- preparing those dishes, if my customers take the time to appreciate the food in the way that I appreciate the, the elements of those dishes, I think that they'll be able to... But it is kind of like uh, on one end you're putting this into it, and if they can understand that. If they, if they can get out of it what I'm putting into it, exactly. then they're, then they're going to have a, a good experience. That's what I'm trying to convey yeah. there. But yeah. I don't know that I'm, uh, I, I don't know that I have the right way to say it. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe it's that simple is, is that, uh, you know, that I, I, ju- I just hope that, you know, that they can take the time to, to get out of the meal that I've prepared for them, everything that I've put into it. Yeah. I think I I think that's right. I think if people, that's a good way to say that. If people can appreciate, uh, get the same level of of appreciation out of that, I think that yeah, what you've put into it, if they can get that out of it, then uh, tell me when when's the kitchen open at Salt City? Okay, so right now we have brunch on Sunday, and that is from uh, uh, ten a.m. to three p.m. or two, uh, ten a.m. to two p.m. on Sunday. And then on Monday, we do our burger night, and that is uh, that is now full menu plus our artisan burgers okay. on Monday. And that goes from 3 p.m. until 8.30. Okay. And then the rest of the week, every single day, we are open from 11 a.m. until 8.30 p.m. Okay. All day, every day. 
And then um, to see the wonderful photos you often post of the food, I know Salt City posted on their Facebook page, but you have your own Facebook page, uh, Daniel Downing, Chef at Large, and you typically post a lot of the stuff on I, there too, I do. Right? I, I, I maintain my own presence separate from wherever I'm working. Um, I, I started doing that a number of years ago with uh, a Sontag, buffet, uh, Sontag Buffet. That's a, a Sunday buffet in German. It was a... Uh, uh, Oh, uh, uh, culinary experiment that I was doing with a with a uh, uh, local restaurant at the time where they were shutting down their meal service a few days a week, and we were doing a German meal service during uh, the days that the regular meal service wasn't running. Sort of a guest chef program that okay. I was doing, and at that time I started maintaining my own online presence, and I've done that ever since. It just it, it feels easier for me to be able to to keep my own sort of prom professional promotion separate from the business that I'm in. And I, I think that it's also helpful, you know, for those businesses to have, you know, it understood that the chef that they have working there is someone who has a separate online presence. Yeah, and that's like, you know, if you're a graphic artist or you're a photographer or a writer, you have your portfolio. It'd be much Absolutely. like that, right? Absolutely. I think that, that is very correct. Yeah. And I, I really enjoy the through this conversation, we we keep drawing back to that, you know, the, the uh, uh, artists, photographers, writers, musicians, so on and so forth. The, you know, really and truly what, what we do in the kitchen is is the exact same kind of work it, it really is we're we're working with different instruments with different elements but we're we're trying to do the same thing as any artists absolutely well thank you for sharing your craft and your art with us and thanks for coming on today and talking absolutely. with me about it thank you for your time jason absolutely i'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and hutch possible my son mitchell probst wrote and recorded the music for the show jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art and Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Salt City Sound Production.